0: Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's great to be back on the air. And you know why I say this? Because we are now entering a new season. So I know many of you all are wondering, where is the time machine going to take us next? Well, I can tell you this much. We're going to go a little bit further than we've probably been before. So I'm sure some of you are thinking, When you say further, how much further are we going compared to before? Well, I'll tell you this much. We are going to be going into the 17th century. That's quite a leap, considering that we've spent a fair amount of time in the 18th century, as well as in the 19th, and some in the 20th. That doesn't mean future podcasts might not be confined to a a piece of history in the 18th, 19th, or 20th century. It's just that we have not... Um, talked about a uh, topic, or rather a book topic, I should say, that has uh, pertained to um, American history dating to the 17th century. Of course, one thing I do know is that when I think of 17th century America, I tend to think of um, Europeans coming over to the New World, Europeans most notably from England, and to an extent France, whom are um, trying to establish settlements along the eastern seaboard of North America. Of course, the Spanish are already ahead of the game. They have already uh, established settlements not only in the New World but in the um but most notably in South America and the Caribbean uh, in the late 16th century. That's not to say that um uh, before the 16th century ended that uh, the English had um, attempted to establish a permanent settlement, most notably uh, in Roanoke, or rather uh, the lost colony of uh, Roanoke Island in in what we now know as present-day North Carolina, that um, did succeed at one time, but ultimately failed. So, what we have to wonder now is where exactly are we heading to in the 17th century does it pertain to an established settlement? Does it pertain to um, something that has not been talked about before? Well, it could mean a host of things. What I do know is that what we're going to be discussing that pertains to 17th century and um, colonial, what well, probably some of us could say is colonial America, but really in a sense the New World, because we haven't gotten to that official title of colonial America in the 17th century. We are technically the New World, but what we're going to be discussing has to do with a particular event that happened in the late 17th century that had a significant impact not only in the colony for which it occurred, but the impacts were felt in places well outside the colony. So. Let's uh, begin with the prologue of what our upcoming book series topic will be about. And before this um, podcast segment ends, I will reveal to you all the title of the book we will be discussing. So, let's get ready to listen in on this uh, prologue, Introduction. Whenever people become first acquainted with early 17th century American history, their initial thoughts or responses usually pertain to English colonists establishing settlements in Virginia, 1607, and Massachusetts, 1620. Hey, you can't go wrong with that. I mean, to me, that would be my first response to um, 1607, Virginia, uh, 1620, Massachusetts. The settlers coming to Virginia, and pilgrims coming to what we now know as um, present-day Plymouth Plantation, although that's not where they originally settled in 1620. They settled originally around uh, what we now know as present-day Cape Cod, but they ultimately went further inland into uh, Plymouth. Most people don't also know this too, but but most but most historians know that the english uh given that when they arrived to uh what we now know as virginia in 1607 they were convinced that virginia um was was bigger than was big and they had every reason to believe it was big they were convinced that where they had a, where they were about to establish the settlement went not only far north but perhaps uh far west I'll probably I'll tell you all a little bit more about that um, as this uh, prologue continues to progress, but just to give you an indication that uh, some of the uh, settlers were convinced that um, that Northern Virginia when we think of Northern Virginia we think of um, like Fairfax County, um, Arlington, Alexandria but they were convinced that uh, present that. The northern Virginia that they knew of in the 17th century went all the way into what we now know as present-day New York City. So, they had no idea that, they really, they really had no idea what perhaps they might have been getting themselves into, but yet they had this grand illumination that where they were going was so big that there were no boundaries, that it just kept going on and on. So, Yes, whenever people become first acquainted with early 17th century American history, their initial thoughts or responses right away will pertain to English colonists establishing settlements in Virginia, 1607, and Massachusetts, 1620. While it's one thing to learn how settlements got set up by English colonists, People have had tendencies in forgetting about the internal hardships faced amongst European settlers in the New World. And believe me, the internal hardships far outweighed the successes. Yes, there were successes, but the successes didn't happen overnight. One thing I've had to keep reminding myself is that, one of the reasons why settlers came to the New World uh, from England into what we now know as Virginia is because they were told of all these vast riches that existed—gold, silver, you name it. Okay, if those resources existed, where are you going to store them, and how can you be assured that no matter where you stored those resources, that there would not be a conflict from within? In other words. Who's going to be entitled to look over those resources? Who's going to be entitled to have access to them? I should point out that when, um, when the first group of settlers came to uh, what we now know as Jamestown, they were all from different backgrounds, but there were those whom were high up. In other words, they, those whom were high up were of the uh, elite status, the gentry, they didn't believe in working. Working was for those of the lower tier. Well, of course, John Smith went about famously saying, Thou, sh- thou whom shall not work shall not eat. So, in other words, if we're going to survive as, a, as an entire settlement, we all have to pitch in. We all have to work. We all have to get our hands dirty. We all have to do what is best, because if we're not on the same page, then how can our settlement survive. So, yes, we have to be reminded that uh, the internal hardships faced amongst European settlers in the New World were prevalent. Hardships often encountered upon, to name a few, ranged from knowing how to plant crops properly, acquiring food via fishing and hunting, to ensuring communities, or I should say villages, were deemed safe from outside invaders. You know, people forget that when the English arrived in present-day Virginia, they were already a season behind. So, so in other words, when they arrived officially by May of 1607, they tried to go about planting a crop, or their crops, but... It's not so much that they were a season behind, but based upon how they planted those crops, they did not get a good yield. So whom were they in need of assistance? The Indians, the Powhatan Nation. The Powhatan Nation had to teach them how to plant corn. There's nothing wrong with that, but the problem is, is for many of these individuals, their sights are set on what? the riches many of them are still convinced that they'll find riches they won't have to worry about the other stuff somebody else will will just simply bail them out in other words the Indians have seen Europeans come and go they've seen many of them die simply because they didn't know how to survive and they've seen those be executed because they encroached on enemy territory they encroached on natives' territory, that is, territory that had been in their hands for many of centuries. So think about it, you've got, we've already, we, we, we realize that we've got, um, not. we're behind a season. Now, all of a sudden, how are we going to hunt? How are we, we going to hunt? I mean, you know, yes, we, we have uh, muskets or rifles, so yeah, we can go hunt a deer, we can hunt a turkey, we could hunt other kinds of wild game. But how are we going to go about cooking it? And how are we going to ensure that it's going to be enough to feed everyone? And how are we going to ensure that no one's going to fight over who had more food than someone else? So in other words, it's one thing to have food, but how are you going to have enough food to get you through the seasons? We have to remember there are no grocery stores in the 17th century. The bottom line is is that whatever you hunt, you've got to make sure that you have enough that'll last you for more than a week. That's how the Indians did it. But remember, they've been living in this uh, world for a long time, and they know how to adapt per each season. Yes, the Europeans might have known how to have adapted, in their own land, but by coming over to the new world, it's a different ball game. And then ensuring that your communities or villages are safe. What are you going to need to do if you're in order to ensure that a raid doesn't happen? You probably may have to build a palisade or a fort, a fort that, um, that what we might think of as a quadrang- quadrangular fort. A fort that is fortified on all four sides, meaning that you have different lookouts from all directions. You know, with the case of uh, the settlers who came to Virginia in 1607, their greatest fears were, were two things. Number one, they were very uh, fearful of a Spanish uh, attack. They knew that the Spanish had made attempts to uh, establish settlements, most notably closer to Virginia's eastern shore, and had failed. But yet, they knew that the Spanish were already ahead of the game with establishing settlements elsewhere, most notably in the Caribbeans, in South America, and even in what we now know as uh, St. Augustine, Florida. However, the Spanish do have a presence still along the eastern uh, seaboard, uh, not not too far from virginia so they are very very concerned to the point where they go as far as docking one of the three ships being the smallest the discovery and the discovery is what we call a pinnace this being a smaller ship that could navigate the waters of the james river historians know that the first two, that the other two ships the godspeed and the susan constant being the bigger ships um unintentionally damaged um beds of uh oyster reefs, and the reason for that was because they had entered into such shallow waters that that their um that the ships alone were not suited to handle such um low depths the more uh suit and uh sediment that was brought up um meant that you were in uh, shallower waters whereas less sediment and soot brought up would have meant that you were um, navigating in um, not so um, close uh, shallow waters so besides the fear of a spanish surprise attack there was also a fear of an indian um, invasion so by docking the discovery ship in an area along the james river that was remote yes it seemed like a great idea but the b- bigger problem had to do with with the water this water was not of good quality and once it became brackish it posed um a, it posed as a major health concern of course little did the settlers know that once after they had consumed it many would become ill and die from a host of diseases disease early on from the first years of virginia's um of the Virginia colony's existence took the lives of many most notably during the starving time from 1609 to 1610 being that winter when people from within the settlement listen carefully folks I know one would say like viewer discretion advised here I'm not trying to sound gory or um, or um, what do you call it graphic but it did happen during this time People from within the settlement began resorting to measures, such as digging up dead corpses, cooking leather, eating animals, being their own horses. They even went as far as um, eating cats, dogs. The bottom line is the Indians no longer wanted to trade with them. They had to think about their own families. And so... The colonists, while they were left to fend for themselves, some of them went out into the woods to hunt, only to be massacred down by, um, by various uh, tribes of the Greater Powhatan Confederacy. They know uh, that probably about roughly 60 uh, people in the end did survive, but historians now know that during that brutal winter of 1609 to 1610, that cannibalism did in fact happen. One man became so desperate for food, and this did happen, folks, and he was arrested for it, and he was executed. He murdered his pregnant wife because he was that desperate for food. Sorry to sound gory. Sorry to sound graphic. But it. But what you all are learning here should serve as a reminder that it's one thing to have access to food, but it's not something that should be taken for granted. And during a starving time like this, people did not know how to cope with all the uncertainty that loomed around them. When you don't have leaders who don't know how to guide you in the midst of a crisis, then you are going to do things that are going to be very, very unbecoming. Simply summarize it up, Yes, cannibalism did in fact happen, and there were many European settlers who simply did not know how to adapt nor learn what it would take for long-term survival. In a world full of unknowns, given their presence in the eyes of the natives, being the Indians, was invasive. Invasive species may not be seen as anything new, but when it comes to people, the Indians saw the Europeans as invasive, in other words, foreigners who really had no business being on their soil. And, it, and I should uh, point out that sadly disease would become the number one killer in wiping out Native American tribes and even Native uh, American tribes that made up part of a greater Confederacy or, or part of a greater nation. It's one thing that for Europeans and Indians to have gone to war, but disease would be the ultimate killer. Fortunately enough, the Virginia colony was saved in early 1610 when Thomas West, or um, his name, or rather his real surname, was Lord De La war. Delaware folks, the state of Delaware, named after Lord De La War. He arrived with a group of additional settlers. To restore settlement and ensuring the existing establishment didn't fold altogether. Although order was restored, including implementation of martial law by Sir Thomas Dale, for whom Thomas Dale High School is named after in uh, Chester, Virginia, not too terribly far from where I live, martial law lasted in Virginia until 1619, the same year which saw the new world's first legislative body become established right in Virginia, the House of Burgesses. And what made this um, legislative body so unique, folks, was that there were already um, establishments outside of Jamestown known as Hundreds. There was Flowerdew Hundred, Bermuda Hundred, Old Hundred. I'll mention this here uh, again. But for right now, the reason why I'm mentioning it is because when the first legislative body was established in 1619 right in Virginia in Jamestown, the House of Burgesses comprised of 22 men, two from each Burgess, or two from each hundred, (laughs) not from each Burgess, pardon me, but two from each hundred, meaning um, a village establishment, I should say, that comprised of a hundred or more people. So, if you have two representatives per each hundred establishment, and there's 22 men in all representing, that means that there are 11 establishments at the time of 1619 known as hundreds. So, for six days in 1619, the House of Burgesses met. It might be fair to say in 1619 that when the House of Burgesses met, they probably got a lot more achieved in a six-day span than Congress. Not to get political, but that's just the way it is. In 1619, uh, Burgess members probably didn't have a whole lot of distractions. They didn't have interest groups to deal with. But then again, each Burgess man himself probably was um, his own form of an interest group. However, um, even in 1619, while progress was made over time, peace itself was never 100% stable between the English and the Indians. Too often our minds lead us into uh, believing that whenever pictures get presented with Indians and settlers coming together for a harvest, that everything around them comprised of living happily in harmony. Wishful thinking, to say the least. I remember my father, uh, real quick, uh, showing me a picture from a textbook many, many years ago that, that he would have uh, been exposed to um, back when he was a young fellow uh, in the 1950s, and it showed a picture of a group of women coming off a boat, entering onto Jamestown Harbor, with the Indians greeting them and guiding them off the boat. My dad said to me, he said, Kirk, this is what we were taught back in the fifties. We were taught that everybody coexisted peacefully, everyone lived happily ever after, and that um and that if anybody died, they died of natural causes. How untrue that is. Even my father said that when he learned about the start, about the period from 1609 to 1610 in Jamestown, that people just died of natural causes. We all know that's not true. How times have changed! But of course, for my father's generation, what the textbooks revealed then really meant really was meant to taught that everybody learned how to coexist peacefully. But um, but ironically, that was not the truth. That was not the case. But it was all about selling. It was all about wanting to sell what was um, right in the eyes of those whom published the book. But nonetheless, our minds often do lead us into believing that whenever pictures get presented with Indians and settlers coming together for a harvest, we do tend to think that everything around them comprised of living happily in harmony. But in Virginia, violence between Natives and English first began (laughs) when English settlers got off on one of their ships in May of 1607, only to receive an onslaught of bows and arrows, of bow and arrows. In other words, historians know that um, that the Indians, more than likely, um, you know, the Powhatan Nation was, was huge. It comprised of about 15,000 Indians. So historians do know, including archaeologists at Jamestown, they have uncovered... Um, a village, and you can actually see the, um, you can see like what's called a 3D image in the museum at the Jamestown-Yorktown um, Museum, or Jamestown Living Museum, of a Paspahague village. So more than likely, the Paspahagues were the first to have confronted the English when they got off uh, the ships in 1607. The past, the Paspehagues were the ones that more than likely launched their uh, bows and arrows and did strike a couple of uh, English settlers. Although the years from 1614 to 1622 in Jamestown were considered as peaceful times, given Pocahontas and John Rolfe's marriage helped bridge the gaps between each side, tensions never wavered away. And during a stretch before March of 1622, Indian tribal members from various tribes went to live in various settlements, dubbed 100, meaning 100 or more settlers living per each village establishment. And within the villages, Indians were learning everything there was possible about how the English operated on a day-by-day basis. In other words, how were the English conducting um business in other words how are they tending their fields how are they going about cooking their foods where were they leaving objects in other words why why would it be important to know where objects were left well sometimes if you're not careful you can be trusting one side can be very naive they can think well if i you know if i leave these objects right here the other party just won't think anything of it. They'll know um, not to take my possessions. They'll know simply that if the possession doesn't belong to them, not to uh, think of interfering with what's in front of them. Well, over time, after all these observations, and through turning to um, astronomy through um, the different phases of the moon, The Powhatan Nation relied upon their gods to help them orchestrate an attack. An attack that in their eyes would wipe out all invasive species. This attack became an uprising that saw 347 English people be massacred all in one day's time, March 22nd of 1622. Whatever harmony existed prior to 1622, prior to the 1622 uprising, would never return again. So, there is a lesson taught right here. Be careful what you leave out in plain sight. Be careful Be careful how long of a habit it becomes. Be careful of how much trust you place in another party. Sure, you may want them to come and live and become accustomed to your traditions, perhaps become accustomed to Christianity, but just because they're in your presence, it doesn't always mean they're going to abide by your rules, your customs, your ways of life. Uprisings came and went between English settlers and the Powhatan Confederacy tribal nations shortly after the 1622 massacre. So, in other words, even after this massacre, there is still uprisings or there's still war, tension. Even in 1624, the English were willing to make some form of reconciliation. And they gave Indian tribes a beverage. They gave them wine. Little did the Indians know that there was a poison placed in the wine that resulted in mass killings of Indian um, tribes. Many simply never recovered in terms of their numbers. Shortly after the 1622 massacre, no matter how well-coordinated other Indian um, attacks were in their efforts to rid all in, invasive peoples, being the Europeans, most notably the English, the greatest disadvantage that Indian uh, tribes had being that of the Powhatan uh, Nation. Of course, it could be said for countless other Indian tribes, but in Virginia, the biggest disadvantage that Indian tribes had under the Powhatan nation lied with not being able to repopulate. The English could keep on transporting settlers whom were willing to journey 3,000 miles across the ocean to replace those whom had died from disease or Indian attack. The last crowning victory for the Powhatan uh, Confederacy came in 1644 when Opechanchano orchestrated an uprising that led to 500 colonists' deaths. This triumph was short-lived as Opechanchano became imprisoned by English settlers where he died shortly after, which included seeing the ultimate decline of the Powhatan authority, where many tribes were forced off their ancestral lands only to be placed onto reservations. And that was, uh, sadly, something that happened not only in Virginia, but in countless other, um, countless other places in uh, what we now know as North America. History, you know, has shown what happened uh, with the Trail of Tears forcing uh, the Cherokee Nation to relocate uh, miles and miles away to where they were forced to settle well west of the Mississippi into uh, present-day uh, Oklahoma. And this was all done by means of force. Of course, that would be another uh, two centuries being in the 19th century, but once the law went into effect, there was no going back. While uprisings can often be portrayed as battles between two opposing sides, it doesn't always necessarily mean that a war is about to take place. You know, usually when we think of uprisings, yes, we get large groups of people whom have mobilized. And yes, uh, violence can be um, seen as a means of resolving a conflict. Because, you know, when uprisings do take place, that's where extremism itself is prevalent, regardless of whether it's on the left or the right Uprisings, however, evolve over time. And uprisings, no matter what the issue is at stake, uprisings can be seen as works of art. And some of the best examples of when uprisings occur over time can range from the following. When heads of government Abuse their power, so in other words, you have rulers whom become so corrupt that all they care about is looking after themselves or those in the inner circle, those of uh, of the wealthiest in the society leaving the leaving everyone else out there to fend for themselves. Another uh, good example of an uprising is when um Dissidents take matters into their own hands, but doing so without seeking nor gaining the consent from the heads of state above. And that has often been seen a great deal in history. Those whom take matters into their own hands often end up being the dictators, like Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein had uh, been a part of a um, group I believe it was the bath party it was, but he had been a part of a dissident group for some time whom did not like the establishments that were already in existence. And so he was a part of the the dissident group that helped overthrow a ruler. And he was also involved in coming up with methods of torturing those whom he did not like. And it got so bad to where he came up with about a hundred different ways of torturing people and he had gone as far once he became dictator when he entered the Legislative Assembly, he called out the names of those whom he felt were out to get him. He asked that they stand up. He asked that they stood up, rather, and after he had made the the accusations, he told them to leave and go outside. Little did those people whom were falsely accused know that their life was about to come to end, about to come to an end. In other words, Saddam Hussein had all of those whom he didn't like executed. So in other words, this is an example of someone who was a dissident. He took matters into his own hands. He did so without seeking nor gaining the consent from a head of state above him. And history has shown that throughout since the beginning of time that dissidents if not um, paid careful attention to, will go to whatever extremes they can um, get their um, hands on when it comes to gaining power, even if it means violently removing those from within not only their circle, but from a circle above them, all in the name of not um, agreeing upon the matters at hand. However, um, uprisings don't have to even involve dissidents going to um, extremes such as taking matters into their own hands without getting the um, proper consent from above. Extremists can go to such resorts as plotting attacks on government buildings, a.k.a. institutions, institutions whom are supposed to say represent the people, only to uh, be denied... A proper voice where previous requests for change had been issued only for those requests to have not been met on the other hand uprisings don't always result in mass deaths but when removal occurs people don't recover instantly and the best example I can give to you all of, of this one Let's think of November 22, 1963. Dallas, Texas, President John F. Kennedy assassinated. Yes, there were those whom did not like JFK. Even JFK himself knew he had enemies. There had already been two previous assassination attempts on him, but they were um, but they were called off, rather. JFK went to Texas. Texas is a fractured state. JFK knows he needs to go to Texas. He needs to be able to build solid ground. Dallas, on the other hand, is a hotbed, a hotbed of extremism. It may not be a, um, a dominant city when it comes to organized crime but there's enough extremism in Dallas and enough people who don't like him to where there were those whom warned JFK ahead of time not to go. Of course, we all can say that even if JFK had not gone to Texas in November of 63, he would have had to have gone at some point down the road. But sadly, there was not a mass... While, yes, there were those whom did not like JFK, and while, yes, there were those whom went as far as calling him a communist, there were those whom simply did not like him, really, for what he stood for, nearly 60 years later, his death still remains unsolved. But yet, his removal didn't result in mass deaths in Dallas, Texas. Yes, there were people whom were linked to JFK who would be mysteriously removed in the years after his assassination, but just because uh, someone is um, taken out from high above, it doesn't mean that, that other dominoes follow right away where innocent civilians are executed at the same time. So... Uprisings happen big and small, but to me, the most powerful one that I can think of would have been what happened nearly 60 years ago. Mass deaths didn't occur on November 22, 1963, but the killing of President John F. Kennedy carried scars that that took a long time to heal. As my dad said, he was at school, and the teacher came in sobbing, crying. He and his classmates didn't know what had happened. They thought maybe the teacher had a family member who, um, who either passed away unexpectedly or, um, or just uh, had something terrible happen, only to get a, um, a news report over the Loudcom from the principal telling the whole student body the inevitable of what happened. My dad said you could have heard pins drop. It was that powerful. So for my parents, the assassination of President Kennedy was their 9-11. In the earliest years of, of Virginia's um, establishment and going forward years later, Her people knew they had inhabited something big, territory-wise. Some were truly convinced Virginia went all the way towards the Great Lakes, including the Pacific Ocean. But past her fall line, being the boundary that separates the coastal plain and the Piedmont regions, lied the frontier, a.k.a. the Wild West, The frontier was home to Indian tribes whom resided on lands protected through previous treaty negotiations. The early to mid-1670s saw some property owners go to extremes by requesting all Indian tribes residing on the frontier, being those lands um, reserved through uh, treaty negotiations. The select... um, few, whom were against the presence of Indians residing along the frontier, the select few wanted them all removed completely. The leader requesting this demand was none other than a young fellow named Nathaniel Bacon, a man whom knew nor respected anything pertaining to boundaries from those leaders above whose authority preceded all others. Nathaniel Bacon wanted an expedition placing him at the head, but leaders in Jamestown weren't for it. But little did those high above know that a rebellion had already been in the works, and once the fuse got lit, there would be very little available in curtailing the rippling effects which followed given fires themselves don't get eliminated overnight you know oftentimes we think of fires you know we think of like a wildfire we think of someone's home going up in flames you know the fire department could be notified and sure it might take a couple of hours to put out a fire a a, a, we call it a mass alarm fire if the whole house is going up in flames it may not take long to put out a grease fire, but when it comes to um, a situation where the heads of state are being challenged by a landowner whom has no boundaries or whom has no respect for boundaries and will go about uh, doing something so, um, so astronomical or so um, unfathomable, and once the fuse has been lit, yeah, uh, the means of uh, trying to recover from what has taken place, it won't happen overnight. In other words, whatever fires will get lit, it's going to take time. It could take months. It could even possibly take a generation. Seeds of rebellion are works of art, but what's implemented, their outcomes can be felt miles away in places least expected which proved true during 1676 the year of Bacon's rebellion this rebellious incident was one that impacted all sectors from planters slave traders indian tribes in and around virginia colonial officials whom couldn't whom could not turn back given just how much lied at stake regarding personal and statewide security. So, folks, the title to this uh, next uh, podcast series, or I should say the title of this of the book we are doing for our next podcast series is the following. Tales from a Revolution, Bacon's Rebellion and the Transformation of Early America by James D. Rice. Well, folks... Um, that concludes our prologue for this uh, podcast series, and I look forward to being back on the air again next. And what we're going to learn, and when I'm on the air next time, is we, we've got to uh, go a little further uh, back. In other words, yes. So re- what we've what we know so far is that a rebellion takes place and will take place in 1676. But we have to we have to remember that a rebellion just doesn't happen overnight. We have to learn about what was going on going into 1676. Because what, was, because what takes place before 1676 will explain even more so as to why this uh, tinderbox explodes. Why it ex- will it explode so much so to where there simply is no turning back. Well, thank you for your time as always. I look forward to being back on the air again next time. And thank you again for being such ardent listeners. And I know that we are going to learn a great deal in this uh, upcoming uh, new podcast series. Thank you again and stay safe.